Welcome to Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters. I'm Michonne Boston. And I'm Tequina Boston. We're your hosts and real-life sisters who geek out on historical drama. We'll talk about films, fictional adaptations, and dramatic series as windows to the past and mirrors of the present. So fill your teacup or mug with your favorite sip as we explore what's fact, what's fiction, and the so what on historical drama with the Boston Sisters. This is Michelle Boston. And this is Tequina Boston. In this episode, we're talking about the film Passing by first-time director Rebecca Hall, who adapted it from the 1929 novel by Harlem Renaissance writer Nella Larson. Passing stars Ruth Naga and Tessa Thompson as Claire and Irene, two women who knew each other as girls and reconnect by chance. Both are fair-skinned Black women who can pass for white, but make very different life choices. Irene marries a Black man who is a doctor and raises her children in the Black community. Claire, on the other hand, lives her life as a white woman and is married to a white man and international banking agent who admits his hatred for Black people, but doesn't know his wife is Black. After their chance meeting, Claire and Irene forge a complicated relationship with each other that reveals the tensions between their choices and their families. We're happy to have Emily Bernard join us for this conversation about passing. Emily wrote the introduction to Passing for Penguin's 2018 republication of Nella Larson's novel. Born and raised in Nashville, Tennessee, Emily Bernard is the Julian Lindsay Green and Gold Professor of English at the University of Vermont. Her first book, Remember Me to Harlem, The Letters of Langston Hughes and Carl Van Vechten, was a New York Times Notable Book of the Year. Her most recent book, Black is the Body, Stories from My Grandmother's Time, My Mother's Time, and Mine, won the 2020 LA Times Isherwood Prize for Autobiographical Prose. Emily, I am so thrilled to be talking with you about passing. Thank you for joining us in this conversation. Thank you both so much for having me. This is a really exciting afternoon for me. Great. So for the benefit of our listeners, who was Nella Larson and why is she important in American literature? Well, Nella Larson actually was born Nellie Walker in Chicago in 1891. Um, Her mother was white, Danish, and her father was from the Danish West Indies. Her father disappeared from her life when she was very small. Her mother remarried another Danish man, a white man, Peter Larson, with whom she had another child. And Larson really struggled uh, for the rest of her life with in the step relation with her stepsister and her mother's second husband. But she always always a close relationship with her mother. She was married to a man called Elmer Imes, um, who was a very prominent physicist. And it was actually through that marriage that she became part of the social circle, the social world of Harlem that included Langston Hughes and Van Vechten, Du Bois, other writers and and artistic and political figures. And she became a writer around that time period. She started to write um, stories and Quicksand was her first novel and it was published in 1928. And then she wrote Passing in 1929. 
she has emerged, I think, in our historical reconsideration of the Harlem Renaissance as one of the most prominent writers of that time period. But it was very difficult for her for reasons that were had to do a lot of them with, with gender. Um, being a, a, an older woman, considered older, at a time when the culture was really focused on the young and what was new. She actually took some years off of her age, which was not uncommon, and um, Hurston did the same thing as Earl Hurston. But she was an incredibly uh, refined um, writer and was lauded by Du Bois and other critics for her style and her promise. But um, after she published a passing, she never published another novel. And she ended her career as a, as a nurse living in Harlem, really detached in the whole, the whole literary scene. So what does it mean for a Black person to be passing at the time Nella Larson was writing her novel? Uh, what does that mean today? Or is passing passe? Um, I think passe is a great question. Literally in Nella Larson's time, to pass meant to insist upon access to spaces and resources that were designed to keep Black people out. I think it's really important in the film and the book to know that Irene is passing, you know, the first few um, frames of that of the story. I mean, she is passing in a way um, that is not uh, about making a, a choice according to morality or um, a sense of self-hatred, but she simply, you know, wants to take a, a cab to go to the Drayton Hotel to get, to get some tea in a hot afternoon. So there, I think there are a lot of that kind of casual passing that was not informed by politics or even racial identity, but just about comfort and ease, you know, being able to put to, it was about a matter of not, not insisting upon your blackness, you know, it was a kind of sin of omission as opposed to commission. Um, but that's really what it, what it was, you know, and then of course we have these really big stories about race betrayal and a kind of longing to return. But I think they're, for the large part, we're talking about, um, people who, whose, whose skin color was ambiguous enough, you know, who, who are not read, um, who are not read by white people as, as black, who used that um, in-between space to simply make their lives a little more comfortable. So how does, um, how does this reflect on Nella Larson's life and, and, the, and the novel? What was going on in her life that mirrors what's going on in the book Passing, as well as the characters and the situations who are real-life people but become characters in the book? Well, just as Larson finished writing Passing, her marriage fell apart. Um, really, it was, it was a really tragic situation. Her husband, uh, they moved to Nashville to, her husband was teaching at Fisk University and where her parents are alums. Um, and he was a very well-regarded, you know, um, faculty member on campus, loved, and he started having, he had an affair um, with a white woman on campus, actually, another, a colleague. And sadly, the whole campus took the side of Elmer and his girlfriend um, and left Nella out in the cold. I mean, she was really alienated. She already felt uncomfortable in the community. She, you know, Fisk was very conservative, you know, very socially conservative and all the things that, let's say, um, were her character in Quicksand uh, that Helga Crane, you know, had problems with, Nella Larson had problems with, the strict dress codes and, you know, all the rules around female behavior. Um, she really, you know, struggled with all of those things. And so she was already out of place and then her husband had betrayed her. Um, 
they both used Carlton Beckton as a confidant. And it was so interesting to watch him, you know, be portrayed in the film as Hugh Wentworth, sort of modeled on Van Beckton. And the same was true in Herson's real life, excuse me, in Larson's real life, that she reached out to Van Beckton for counsel, you know, as did her husband. And so I spent a lot of time with these people's personal papers and their journal entries where Carl is saying, Elmer came today, you know, he's upset about how to deal with Nella and Nella came and um, he was really the marriage counselor. So those things, she was dealing with that betrayal, I think, and a sense of um, an identity that had really uh, pulled up from under her feet. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, suddenly one minute you're in a stable marriage, it seems pretty clear. And next minute, a whole other reality is introduced and she didn't have the satisfaction of even um, getting the sympathy of her own people, you know, black people on this campus. And they, they really find her, found her tiresome and preferred uh, Elmer Imes's girlfriend. So that was a really, I think, very destabilizing for her. And those, I, I wonder if that gave her some access into the kind of slippage um, that, that's where, where, you know, in passing this, since everything is so precarious, you know, that there's nothing stable. And that was what, what was her life was like, you know, at that time. And her husband was black. Yes, her husband was black. Okay. Yeah. Now, Emily, when I was reading, and I hope I got this accurately, um, but one of the things that stood out in the introduction uh, that I read to Passing was how in the time Nella Larson was writing about, there was a lot of resistance and um, people pushing up against stereotypes and social expectations, whether that was race, whether that was sex and gender, whether that was class. Could you talk a little bit more about how, uh, particularly, I guess, Black people were, uh, I guess, in our own times, we would look at it as uh, advancing our own image of who we are and, and rejecting uh, the, the roles and the stereotypes that were being put on Black people at the time. And you said the same was happening with women as well. Yeah. I think th th the party scene was so interesting, you know, um, and I thought how strange it must seem to audiences today, you know, um, to watch a scene where Black people are dancing and white people are just standing around staring. <laughs> I thought, well, actually, this is a lot of, you know, pop culture today, you know, white kids, you know, making up um, so many numbers of consumers, you know, of, of hip hop and, and rap music, you know, um, isn't the same impulse to kind of have access to a secret or hidden life that you're forbidden, you know? And so in some ways it's the same, same thing. Nothing has changed, you know? Um, what's interesting to me is how black people kind of manage that white fascination. You know, what do you do with it? Um, if you literally cannot eject them from the spaces because they own some of them or, or their money is keeping, you know, them, them, um, the doors open, how do you work around it? How do you manage to have joy and experience authenticity at the same time, knowing that you're constantly being observed. So there's, I think it's interesting in the, in the book that the culture we're seeing is both exceptional, but also really mundane. You know, when you think about Brian and, Irene, I mean, they have a pretty conventional lifestyle, which of course drives Brian crazy, you know, and Irene is desperately trying to hold on to, but they have a beautiful home, you know, they have these two servants in the house, you know, who are there to, um, I think, help Irene um, maintain a sense of who she is and nothing else, right? They're, yes, 
you know, poor Zulina is always, you know, at the sink, but she's serving a larger role, which is to help uh, Irene or reinforce for Irene a sense of her class superiority, which I think is something she's holding onto desperately in the book. You know, there's a quiet desperation. I thought that the, uh, it was played so well, you know, in the movie and what she, all she's holding onto wordlessly, she's desperately as a woman, you know, um, the pressures on her, to conform and to keep the marriage together when she knows her husband is so restless and the outer, the larger world, you know, which is um, crashing down on them, regardless of her wanting to maintain a sense of every, everything being so nice. But, you know, they're in, but in so far as that they are keeping, they're, they're having a really lovely life and they're trying to, she wants her kids to be happy. You know, I think that black joy is still really very radical. <laughs> you know, we don't see a lot of depictions of that, you know, um, we often don't we often feel forced to introduce our kids to the hard realities of adult life. You know, it's just a matter of when. You know, when is it? When do we do it? And so we might, you know, we might um, we might look down on Irene for and say she's trying to maintain a fantasy world, but I think she's just trying to keep her, make sure her kids have a sense of themselves as human beings um, and have a right to 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 feel indestructible like all kids feel you know um and should feel and she tries to maintain that for as long as possible so they're so even though their life is so conventional um it's also really radical and that all she's trying to do is maintain a comfortable home for her children um and i think that's still pretty radical you know to for for black people that is going against the norm you know to say what we have at our home or you know parents who love you and want to try to shape a world that's better for you. And that's all Irene is trying to do. And I, so I think that's, it's really fascinating about, about this whole time period because it is such a radical moment of, of a beginning, you know, and you are insisting on your integrity as a human being in the most mundane ways, you know, just getting my child a, a present for his birthday, you know, that's what we see her doing. I mean, these are just mundane acts, but they're so radical. I mean, you think, just a generation before, this would not have been conceivable. I mean, you know, even taking that scene and putting it in Alabama. I mean, just, you know, for, for Irene Redfield in 1928, 1929, to simply be shopping for presents for her children. You know, we're a generation away from emancipation. You know, that's pretty yeah. remarkable to think about, about that. So, Queena, if you don't mind, I think... Emily has set us up for the question that's further down the sheet yeah, about yeah, the talk. About yeah. The talk. There is a scene yes. in the movie and in the book where we have the talk. And Brian is trying to teach his sons the ways of the world as black as young black men. And, to protect um, them. To really. protect them. And Irene is refusing to have the n-word in the house at all costs and um, brian is played in the movie by andre holland and the sons are played by justice davis graham and ethan barrett so irene and brian obviously have different understanding understandings of how they're raising their children to deal with race can you talk more about how their conflicted perspectives are affecting their marriage. <laughs> There's a lot going on with that marriage. I think that's just actually just was rewatching it this morning, and that first moment when Tessa Thompson, you know, as as Irene is kissing him and embracing him, and I thought about what that meant in the book. You know, she again, she's trying so hard to maintain 
an image and maintain this lifestyle that's so hard for her. I think she's, you know, imprisoned in ways we can't see. And she is so terrified of her children, I think, growing up. She's terrified of them learning about race and sex. These are the two things she does not want Brian to talk about. The hot button issues of this day, of that day or any day. Um, and there's so much hostility, of course, that Brian communicates when he says, oh, sex is a big joke anyway. You know, it takes pains to say this to his wife. As we know that there's problems there in their intimacy. But race, you know, he doesn't want to the kids to know. I mean, she, excuse me, Irene really doesn't want the kids to know about the world, you know, in that way. And I, I, listening to their conversation, I thought about that famous image, you know, Du Bois, um, the sign, a man was lynched yesterday, you know, outside the, the offices of the NAACP. And what that meant to remind you know, people walking the streets of New York, we are in the middle of a crisis, you know, we're in the middle of a literal, another, another pandemic, right? Which is lynching, you know, it, it kind of epidemic. Um, and it's going on. We're enjoying our, you know, evenings and the speakeasies and our, we have our, our magazines and our book prizes, but we are in the middle of a crisis that is shaping us and affecting us. And it's the world that Irene doesn't want her kids to, to, to understand. And I think it's about her own sense of powerlessness. You know, um, she, has well you know she's so, her power is limited i think necessarily right as a as a woman as a black woman um and the mother of these boys i mean she's got to be living in absolute terror all the time and i think a huge problem of course is the lack of communication between irene and brian and we don't know what started that you know what was the chicken or the egg you know was it was she was she always timid was she always wanting to live in a fantasy world um or did this happen at some point um, with the pressures of adult life? You know, what's, what is Irene hiding? I think her fears are, are deep and, and invisible to us. You know, what she's really, although we can imagine what it might, what it might be like for her. Um, we know that she's also not satisfied with the life she's living, you know? So that's why she could only turn her, um, she can only turn a kind of critical eye toward everything Brian is doing, because we know that she's suffering from her own dissatisfactions that I think have to probably have to do with her identity and sexuality, you know? Um, so she can barely handle what's happening in her interior life, you know? So the idea of having her sons enter this violent world um, where she can't protect them, I think protect them is, is too much. And it is, I, I can't imagine how this relationship would, you know, is going to survive this. I mean, Brian, he, he imagines going to Brazil because he thinks that there'll be a place where there'll be a broader understanding of race and he'll have a, a wider range of access to, to identify himself. I mean, I think we, I mean, Brian is, is frustrated with his work. You know, you could feel, you can feel him feeling hemmed in. I mean, he has everything, you know, you could want, but it's, he feels overwhelmed by the tedium, you know, of, of his life. And he wants more, he wants more from life. Um, whereas Irene is just trying to hold on to, to what they have. So what about the real world? And, what, what happens when the kids leave the home, this perfect little nest that Irene has built. I think she can't imagine it, you know, I, I think, and I think it terrifies her that they might wake up to reality because she's so terrified. I think of, of waking up to reality herself, you know, I don't think it's something she can manage. And I think it's, it's really killing her. And that's why I think she's Tessa Thompson, great job. She's always sick, you know, I feel like this kind of malaise that's always, you know, um, haunting her. 
And it's life. It's life in the modern world, which is unmanageable for her, her interior life and the world outside, you know, and it's got to be, it's got to be extraordinary to be living a life that anybody would envy, but to know that it can be taken away at any moment uh, because of the, because of white supremacy, which is still the real story, you know, even in this lovely world they have, it's still out there, of course, in the figure of Jack Bellew, you know, but it's still there and it's something she can't protect her children from. And I think, you know, as parents, we, we, I think we, we might understand how um, she simply doesn't have the vocabulary to, to help them understand this. And I think she can't because she, there's things about herself she doesn't even want to face. So here we have Irene, who's really trying to hold so much together, as you said, internally, but also her family, the life that they've kind of built, this, you know, middle class, professional, Black people, 1920s Harlem. And in comes Claire, who seems to want to just, she insists on being in Irene's life. And it's interesting because at the same time that Irene is doing so much, you know, uh, ignoring the letters, not inviting her, um, she also seems to have a kind of fascination with Claire. So could you talk a little bit about what is that about? What even that tension in Irene? Um, yeah. Why, why is she both intrigued, fascinated, but also uncomfortable with Claire? I think it's that's a great question and i have to also mention that um you know i i loved i know we're going to talk about the black and white one thing that's really great in the book is um there's a lot of attention paid to claire's handwriting you know and the and the colors of ink and the paper it's very sensual i mean that's how we're, we always have this claire since since of claire is someone who cares about the details you know and the kind of finds the erotics even in the color of the of ink you know so Yes, you're right. She keeps finding her way in. I think I think for Irene, Claire is just, she has trouble. You know, she's trouble that walks in the room. She walks in, she's, you know, on the roof of the Drayton and she's got, you got to see this great image of those two kind of dowagers, you know, sitting and this other couple is up to something no good we can probably imagine. And then here's, and then we have this elegant woman who seems to know how to organize her body, the way she leans in, the way, you know, she has a kind of bodily vocabulary that I think must be very exciting to Irene, who's so repressed, you know, even Irene's clothing. So it's just rectangular, you know, just hiding. She seems to be hiding beneath the layers. Whereas um, Claire seems to always know how to shine and always know how to, she knows where to find the light, you know, even in the hotel. And I think it's so attractive to Irene, who seems so like a desert of emotion, you know, she, and she has so much you feel that she wants to say. Um, but she is so far buried far underneath all of her desires and all the things she said no to in her own life. And here's Claire who's seamless and who seems fearless and who, you know, um, is shocking, you know, when she goes, they go to, up to the room together and Claire's, you know, ordering champagne, which is great. And I, you forget, and what I loved about the movie and other thing I liked about it was the way they, they make sure you remember it's prohibition. You know, I think one of the things right. you, you all you, you both were talking about and think you both were thinking about was, you know, what are the little markers of the time period? And I think to remember that, to remember that 
it's illegal to, to drink, you know, but everybody's do, with the smart set, you know, where to get your, where your bootlegger, you know, Absolutely. you know, you know where to get the, right, yeah. where to get the hooch. And the embassies, the embassies could have alcohol because they were importing it. Oh, I did not know that's great. But you know, it, it would, the earlier question you asked about, um, about kind of, we talk about kind of convention, you know, and social, the social order. I mean that 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 little those little moments in the movie when you realize Claire's someone who, for a lot of ways in which she's always she's walking a line and she knows how to get what she wants. She yeah 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 I've heard the rules now I'm going to do what I want to do <laughs> and I'm going to show you how to do that. Um, that's how she lives her life, and it's just it's just that that many more degrees away from what Irene feels that she can do. You know Claire's willing to risk everything for what she wants and she knows what mm-hmm. she wants and Irene doesn't she can't even articulate it you know she knows what she doesn't want she doesn't want Brian to leave her she doesn't want Brian to move to Brazil or she doesn't want to move, she, doesn't want, she doesn't want the boys to know about racism but what does Irene want um I think she's fascinated by seeing a woman who seems to just know what she wants and, and down to you know the kind of liquor she wants to drink and um you know where she wants to to, to go in, in her own, in her home. I mean, I think it's startling to Irene that um, Claire has found, find is makes herself at home in, in, you know, in the spa- space that, that she does, where she doesn't belong. I wonder, you wonder, has Irene ever, she clearly has never taken an opportunity to sit in the sun with Zulina, you know, right. obviously before. Right. Yeah. And even playing with the boys, playing with their children, you know, this is something that, Claire's ready to get down on the ground and do this stuff. So she's she's very present, very physically present, and um, and I think Irene in some ways is always trying to disappear. I mean, you know, early on when she hands the white woman the um, doll, you know, and you know, I liked your notes about how she lets her eyes drop. She knows exactly when to do that. Um, so there must have been something in her that was that, that might have delighted in this. Like I'm giving, I, I'm hearing you all, I'm paying attention to you. You don't know but one of those colored women that you're, I am one of those, but it, she's so such a master of disguise. She doesn't betray any of that. But then you wonder, where does it go? Where does it go? You know, surely there's resentment and bitterness. You know, one thing I actually, I've heard from friends of mine who are very light skinned, you hear about some of the things they have to hear from, from white people who say racist things around them, not knowing they're black. And I always think, thank God that, that I'm so obviously black. <laughs> That's just, I feel spared. I think, gosh, that is, I'm so glad I have to deal with that <laughs> along with everything else. You know, people saying these things to you thinking, oh, you're, we can, you're, we can trust you. I mean, I think, I think it creates a, a kind of, it can be really psychologically harmful. So how, do, how do you deal with it? If you, if you're not, if you can't make a joke about it or if you can't make art about it, you know, where does that resentment go? Um, and I think it's just eating Irene up from the inside. And then for Claire, who's just, who is, she's got a lot of rage, you know, a lot of resentment. Um, I mean, I think she detests her husband, you know, but she loves to manipulate. I mean, obviously she, you can't lie to somebody like that and, and respect them. I mean, she has right. contempt yes. for him, you know? Yes. And so she, she, it's a way of her acting, acting, acting out or acting through her own resentments, you know, all the things that she's gone through. I mean, it's not the healthiest thing in the world, but at least she's not carrying it internally, silently suffering the way that Irene is. So I think, Claire, I think Irene does, as you say, I think she admires and resents Claire because um, she seems to not care anything about the rules that Irene is trying to follow so desperately, you know, just so she can survive. Claire seems to pay no attention to it. 
But I also think she's really um, very physically attracted to to Claire. You know, she really, and in, in the movie, I think it made it so beautifully clear. I mean, it's such a psychological novel, isn't it? You're really in Irene's head. Yeah. Yes. I thought they, they tra- it must be so hard to translate to screen. They did it beautifully. You know, you really have a sense of the interior lives of these characters, particularly Irene. And she is so focused on Claire and her beauty. And, um, you know, the way she describes Claire, it's, it's Claire's not even human. You know, she's experiencing, it's like Claire is beauty incarnate, you know, um, and the way she's just so arrested, you know, Claire, aren't you lovely? You know, she can't really, she stops so often by Claire's beauty. I think it's, I think it's a frank, erotic attachment that she can't bear. I mean, that would be the last thing she, I mean, of all the things that Irene can't bear to, you know, admit, I think being attracted to, that would just, her head would explode before she would be able to put words to that. Um, but it's alive and it's real, you know, but I think also Irene, it's also her dissatisfaction with the life that she's chosen, you know? Yeah. And I think Claire reminds her that there are other choices to make. They're not easy choices. Um, not that she would want to pass or ever, you know, but, but just that this is a woman who is pursuing life in a way she, that she, Claire, Irene can't even permit herself to even dream about. Claire is fascinating because she's kind of hiding in plain sight. And I read a book that said that people who break the rules are seen as more powerful than people, even though we think that, for instance, even in a, a waitstaff situation, um, the person who's rude to the waitstaff we perceive as more powerful, even though we don't necessarily admire the behavior. And I see a little of that in uh, Irene's reaction to Claire. And also Claire seems to be able to seduce everybody, the children, the maid, the husband, the uh, Hugh. I mean, she's, she, and as you said, she's one of those people who can kind of make herself at home in any setting. Um, and I love what you pointed out about the clothes. And Michonne, you had a, a note about even how the clothing was used in the film to kind of, uh, in, revealed the interior world of the characters. You'd want to say a little bit about that? Yeah, the first the first thing I noticed in the film were the hats, the hats. And, and just the way the, the hats were selected for the characters. So Claire, that hat framed her face. Her face was in full view. For Irene, that hat came down over her eyes. And... It, and she lowered her head a lot. So you couldn't really see, or she didn't want to be seen, even by Claire from across the room. So what what stood out for me was that Nella Larson, I mean, the filmmaker also hopped on Nella Larson's fascination with fashion and, um, and the details. And it, it usually reveals as much about identity and character as the lines or the story. And in the black community, you know, fashion and clothing reveals something about identity and style as well. So what do you think Nella Larson was revealing about Claire and Irene and describing what they're wearing and just the world they inhabit? Yeah, that's great. You remember um, in, in Quicksand how the main character, you know, she she doesn't have a like a penny to her name, but she, she manages to buy this, but she has to have this little purse that she saw in the department store. And she finds a way to get that purse when literally, you know, she's at the, you know, the welfare office. Um, 
I think that's, I love that. And, and Larson was a close horse. She cared, cared a lot about fashion. She cared about mm. style. Um, something she and Carl had in common, you know, um, they really cared about that. And I, I think it's also fascinating to, to pull back even further and to think, to remember that, you know, this is a, a moment in the, the kind of boom in consumer culture, you know? And so it's only very recently that you can buy clothing off the rack. You know, it's really like the 1890s. So it changes everything, right? It changes the way people um, interact, you know, um, and you have a lot more time on your hands, you know, <laughs> and that's certainly true of Irene, you know, idle hands a little bit, right? Um, but, you know, she has, they have, they have a lot of capital um, to spend on a beautiful home, the presents that she's going to find the right present. She's, you know, got the beautiful hats and all everything you're saying. Um, she's a lot looking in the mirror a lot, you know, I think to make sure she's still there, <laughs> to make sure that she's, you know, kind of wearing the proper face, but also she likes what she sees, you know? So um, I think that's very true of Irene. I think she would probably be embarrassed to admit that, but it's true of her and it's certainly true of, of Claire, you know, um, I think it's a way she also admires Claire and is repulsed by Claire. Claire's in love with herself, you know, in a way that Irene is clearly too, but probably thinks it's unseemly. But to also to get back to this um, idea, though, I think of, of kind of what this book is saying about consumer culture, because, you know, really what we're talking about when we think about passing are, 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 are identities um, disposable? You know, can you pick them up and put them down like a new hat? You know, um, there, another novel written during this time period and how does it affect our, our identities as social beings, but also individually and in terms of, of, of families, you know, um, I want to bring up now um, a novel written, I think it was 1928 uh, by Jesse Fawcett, you know, who's kind of seen as a peer of her, of Larson's um, and her novel Plum Bun, which is also a passing novel, you know, when the, when the character's, uh, the black family get a washing machine. It changes their um, family dynamic because it was a whole ritual, you know, about washing the clothes by the hearth and the, suddenly have a machine to take care of it. What are we going to do with our Saturday nights? And in the end, it kind of actually breaks down the thread of the family. I mean, it actually literally leads to one character dying. Um, largely because his role has been supplanted by this machine. So I think a lot of writers in this period are asking what does it mean? The new convenience we have, the ability to, um, you know, and for women, of course, right. There's a moment of the new woman. So, you know, everything, and it's all on our bodies, you know, what we can wear and, and how are you wearing your hair? Or how are you, what are you, how, how, how high or low your hemlines, you know, has says everything about the new social order. It's not cosmetic, you know, it's actually really central to shaping a new identity. And so for the, these women to have the, the, the money, um, which is of course important for Claire, which she talks about. She's very frank. Yes, she. You is. know what passing, right? What passing yes. means for her. She doesn't. No, she doesn't have a longing to be white. She wants more stuff. You know, right. yes. and and this marrying this white dude was a way to do it. And she doesn't have to work, except she has to act every day of her life. Um, so yeah, I think that's it's really central to the book, as you say. I mean, it makes the book, I think, a really gorgeously sensual experience it adds to that you know the fashion and the color we get in the book but i think the, as a, the characters are asking who am i what does it mean to be a woman in this moment what does it mean to be in a marriage you know what does it mean to be a mother um 
all of these things are getting worked out on the body, literally, you know, um, what, what, how you, if you're smoking or not, you know, it's, it's I mean, you're not fashionable if you don't have a cigarette, you know, in your, between your fingers. Um, are you part of the, this new hip generation? Or are you some old fuddy duddy from the Victorian era? You know, you signal that in your clothing and your hair and, um, and all these other actions. So, so this is how women, I think in this, these women who are not political per se, it's how they signal a kind of politics, you know, who they are. Um, and it's how they dress. Yeah. And another thing that um, gets signaled through the body are assumptions around class. And I think in a novel where you have women who can pass for white, the director seemed to have intentionally cast the maid as a dark skinned woman. Um, could you talk a little bit about the class dynamics around the color line within the black community of that time? I love that. I love that question. I love that you brought that up. And yeah, she, in the novel, there are, she has two servants, two people on staff, Zelina and Sadie. I don't know if Sadie comes up. Um, and right, it was a very important choice that they're you know these are darker skinned women, and and you know it's part of they're part of the the the, the landscape of Irene's fantasy or bourgeois fantasy, you know. Um, and these are women who you know we don't we don't know them except as uh, they work in Irene's home. And then they kind of come to life um, when Claire, I thought it was great. The film actually, when we get it, there's one shot we get from Zelina's perspective. I thought, well, this is something different now because we didn't get any sense of what it, what it felt like for Zelina to her relationship to Irene and for Claire. So we have a sense, I mean, you get the sense of, gosh, Zelina really resents Irene. <laughs> you know, she's just waiting for an opportunity <laughs> to, to kind of make that clear. Um, and, and what does she resent? Does she resent, you know, working in a home of, the, of these black people who, you know, don't treat her any better maybe than, you know, or at least Irene than maybe some other white employer. I mean, is she, what is she, you know, probably there's a novel to be written, <laughs> you know, um, where we hear from Zelina, you know, what it was like, Zoo, as she's called in the book. And I think it was important. So that's a, that's a kind of something else. I think that's, you're right. It's, it's so important. Um, what's going on here, you know, um, and it comes up in the conversation that Hugh and Irene have at the Welfare League ball, you know, where they're talking about gradations in skin color. And Irene, I think, reveals some of her own biases. You know, she her husband is brown skin, but she says she talks about she explains, um, you know, Hugh's wife is dancing with, I think, Ralph, who is very brown. And she says, well, you know, it's excitement of being in the presence of something that's slightly repugnant to you or something and I thought well so she you know she sort of she why, what makes her able to say that <laughs> you know I mean well you know what I'm saying why, why does she think that Ralph is repugnant I mean why would she but she's of course thinking from Bianca's she's imagining that but I thought well no, she's imagining what Bianca might feel but isn't she also in some ways herself I mean Irene um I mean she's a little slippery I think you know she's a race yeah. woman you know but but she also I think is very invested in and her light skin privilege, you know, and probably wanting, you know, she does, she definitely doesn't want Zulina to forget her place, Absolutely. you know, and there's that, that moment when, you know, it's so great. I thought it was so, uh, the way this book is so much about, I think the, in the movie about the body, right. And yes. the way she just asserts assert her power by just shrugging her shoulders and widening her eyes, like, okay, up to it, you know, come grab these bags out of my hand. And Zulina just ignores the signal. But I thought, look, these, this is how you maintain power, right. By this, these kind of little, these, this is how genteel elite people maintain power, you know, by these, those gestures. And, and Irene has it down. So I think that, 
you know, Irene is not um, honest, you know, about, um, you know, I think even her own, her own feelings around racial identity are, are probably murkier in some ways than Claire's are. You know, I think Claire is pretty clear on who she is. You know, she's had to make herself up almost from scratch because she had no, you know, something I think is always important about this story is that Claire, does, we don't know who her mother is. Right. Yeah. You know, I mean, and I hate mm-hmm. to sound essentialist to put it on the woman, but, you know, there's no like moral guidance. You know, if we get, you know, it's a kind of um, longstanding, I think, belief that we get our so much of our public selves from the paternal line, you know, the last name, property, you know, for so, for most of our history has been, you know, we, we inherit that through the male, the male line um, or, you know, we men inherit it from other men or, you know, and women are the bearers of culture, you know, and we get the stories and uh, that's our inheritance, particularly, particularly for black people. Right. It's like, you know, we, we need, um, we need this, we need, a, we need the stories that mothers can tell us. Um, and because there's so little fathering that's made possible, you know, think about the institution of slavery, you know, and it's like, it just, so mothers are crucial, particularly in the kind of history of African-American literature. I mean, really find that's where we get in all the in, in slave narratives, you know, you find your mother, you're looking for your mother and, and that's gives you a sense of who you are. And so Claire has no one. She's no one. She had, you know, this father who was a drunk and a, an abusive guy and, she had, you know, um, these, his aunts who raised her, who were racists, you know, and frankly, Irene's set, her set of these girls were pretty rude to her. You know, they, yes. they kind of played those teenage girls game, teenage girl games with Claire. So she has a lot of, a lot of stuff. She's had to really invent herself. Um, but Irene, I think has had a lot, a lot has come to her, um, that she hasn't questioned. And I think she's, she's gotten a lot of, um, mileage out of being a good girl, you know, and, when Claire comes into her life, she, I think she starts to wonder if that's enough. It's interesting about Claire that she has so much, such a backstory within this really kind of short novel, but you really get a picture of her past and even start imagining or putting together, connecting the dots with what was going on in the country, in the United States at that time that would produce a Claire. But the other thing that's struck me was Claire did not have a good relationship with motherhood. I'm not going to say her daughter, but with motherhood. Can you talk a bit about yeah. that since we brought up motherhood and what the role of mothers? I love that. And I, and I love your distinction because it is, you're right. It is motherhood. Um, and it's true also in quicksand, you know, right. With that yes. really fraught, you know, and I think it's true in a lot of, Black women authored fiction, you know, from their eyes watching God, you know, on all Toni Morrison, she's these monstrous mothers, you know, who are killing. Their, I mean, I can think of two Morrison novels right at the top of my head where the mothers killed their children, you know, and 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 not because they didn't love them, because they they love them so much, you know. Um, and so it's certainly true here that motherhood is a is a losing game in this book, uh, or it's a really it is very fraught, and Claire. Well, she talks about, she very frankly, about being afraid that, you know, her daughter would be dark, you know, how, how worried she was um, that her daughter would be dark in the months preceding the birth. Um, and she talks about Marjorie as her angel. You know, we never see Marjorie, <laughs> you know, she's going out to Switzerland. Switzerland. <laughs> Poor Marjorie. I mean, you know, <laughs> she's going to Switzerland, you know. Um, 
to, to, to have to, who knows, to disappear in the snow there, you know? Um, but, you know, at some point in the book, she does admit that if it weren't for Marjorie, you know, she would just leave her life. You know, she would just leave. She becomes so um, immersed and satisfied in, in Irene's life <laughs> that if it weren't for Marjorie, you know, she would just probably knock Irene out of the way and just take over that life. Um, so what is that about? It's about, I think, um, well, you wonder, you know, how much choice did she have, you know, even in becoming a mother, you know? Probably it was not even a, a question that she was going to do that. It's probably, you know, just sort of, and who knows, maybe she thought she wanted to become a mother, to be the mother she could never, never had, you know, but she, I, you've got, one has to imagine that not living her life honestly around her racial identities does not, was not going to lend itself to a very close relationship with your child, you know? Um, I mean, if you're always, you know, um, having to keep these this essential secret you know, from your, your own child, that's got to be hard to think about um, creating a bond, a bond with this, per with this person. Um, but I also think that Marjorie is really an inconvenience for Claire. You know, Claire wants to be at the party. She wants to be hanging out. She wants to be dancing with Ralph and, you know, uh, Hugh and Brian, you know, so Marjorie kind of gets in the way a little bit. Um, yeah. But I think, but I think that Claire, um, Let's, to be to be fair, I think to be generous, she doesn't know how to be a mother. You know, um, she had she she doesn't have any didn't have any examples, and she's making it up as she goes along. And I just hope that there'll be some, you know, some figure in Switzerland who will be there to to help Marjorie when she, uh, you know, she grows up. Somebody, some some um, someone to help her, so that she can imagine her life a little differently and think of some more options, you know, but it was, it was, it was really fascinating reading Rebecca Hall's story because I thought about Marjorie, you know, Rebecca Hall yes. had this whole life where, you know, these shadowy origins. And I thought about Marjorie and like, it's this kind of full circle, you know, and this is what Marjorie looks like, you know, now. Which is why I guess she was intrigued by the story as well. Um, you mentioned that um, Irene's, I mean, Claire is clear about what she wants um, she also says, I will do anything to have what I want. And yet it seems that she's paid a price for passing. So what is the cost of passing? That's a great question. And I think, I think the cost is the right language. You know, I think cost and price, the right language, you know, I think, to me, I cannot separate the act of passing from money and from our culture and, and capitalism. You know, um, I mean, our identities as a black people have been so bound up in this enterprise. You know, um, it's really hard to separate. You know, how can it not be? I think that the cost, I think, I think it depends on the kind of passing, I would say. Um, if it's a kind of passing where you're just slipping into Neiman Marcus to you know, pick up a pair of gloves, you know, because it's rain, you know, it's snowing outside. Is that, does that hurt your soul in the same way that what, you know, what Claire or Irene sitting um, and listening to Jack say these things and having to sit there and listen to that, you know, are they, it's the same kind of cost. Um, I mean, I think that, I think that there's, there's no, character I could think of any passing novel that didn't deeply and profoundly re 
regret having made the choice to pass. You know, thinking of autobiography of Next Colored Man, um, Langston Hughes has a short story, Passing, um, you know, the works of uh, Jesse Fawcett. Passing is always tragic, you know, Imitation of Life, which, you know, is so, I think, beautifully sits as a bookend to this movie and what Rebecca Hall was doing, making those choices. It's always a mistake, you know, because it always leads to other mistakes, right? It's never just about um, the individual. I think that what the passing individual understand comes to understand is that they don't live in isolation from other people, right? They see that there are consequences so that you do this and it ends up destroying your mother. It ends up hurting your sister um, and ends up, you know, leaving generation descendants lost, confused about who they are. You know, it's not just an individual choice. So passing, I think, looks like an individual choice. And it looks like, I think, a choice that capitalism would sanction. You know, yes, the choice to compete, whatever it takes, um, to try on a new identity, to, you know, whatever it takes to succeed in the marketplace. Um, It seems like that would be a very American choice to make. But it ends up being immoral. Like, it ends up being always an immoral choice to but also not only immoral but it also seems to um you know rob the person of uh their creativity their uniqueness um you know it it i think about james Bond johnson's you know novel in the end that the art the, the guy realizes you know i could have been a great artist but i'm just a mediocre white dude you know, if I had just been committed and, and really been stronger, I could have made some great art. You know, in the end, I'm just a regular person. I'm just a random person that no one's going to remember. Um, I chose the lesser part. And so, you know, the kind of biblical implications of that, that you betrayed not just your race, but your God and this kind of a sacred mission on earth. And I think that that's what that's what it ends up feeling like to, to people who pass. And so you know, when Claire submits, you know, she seems to just slip away. It's like, she's already sold her soul. I think there might be some sense on her part. I've already, I've already sacrificed everything. You know, I've already, I've already, I've, I've given it all away. What, what is in fact, what, what is, um, what, what ground am I standing on? So I think it is, it's pretty dramatic. I mean, I don't think that, um, you know, I, I think as much as, Cla- as Claire, it seems to be having fun, just, you know, messing around people's lives um in the end you know there's no self there there's nothing there that's why she just kind of disappears you know um there's nothing she's not there's nothing there there's no fight in her anymore what what are the um impacts of, the, of this film i've noticed is that it has brought up conversations among people sharing their family stories in fact i'll share one um in which this is on our father's side apparently he had a relative who got a job in the U.S. government at a time where you did not hire Black people for office jobs or anything behind the desk and was discovered, she was very fair, and the manager discovered that she was a person of color and approached her and said, you never told me you were Negro, as they said in those days. And she said, well, you never asked me. So... You know, these stories are starting to come up and people are, I, I love the way this film and this book is getting those conversations. And, and I think even now it has even more layers to it than before. It's not just black and white. What conversations have been coming up since the movie's come out in your world where you are in Vermont and um, 
with your students or family? Well, I love, I mean, I love that this book is, um, I have a fascinating story, by the way. And I, so when I, I want to kind of maybe amend my answer before, because I wasn't imagining, you know, a person, um, like your ancestor when I was answering the question about passing, because, you know, to some degree, we have people like this who are absolutely heroic, you know, for whom crossing those lines not only meant that they could provide for their families, but also that they were breaking into fields that were denied them and they were risking their lives doing it all the time. You know, not even just right. I mean, I can imagine the threat of violence, you know, what happens if somebody, the right, the wrong person is offended and, you know, um, so I want to maybe think about that even more broadly then, because I think that, you know, the way it's depicted here in the fiction, um, I mean, there's so many reasons to pass, right? Um, and, and I think I, those stories, as we hear them, you know, they, they teach us more than anything else. You know, what it was like to really live with that question. You know, how can I be an architect um, in a community that doesn't employ black architects? Um, and so those choices come up and they're, they're meaningful choices. Um, so the conversations, I think, like these, you know, it's wonderful. They're old conversations and they're new conversations. Something that I'm really, um, disappointed by, and I think many people are, you know, of course today and conversations about race, partly because of, you know, what's happening politically such a sense of urgency and black and white, at least to the kind of black and white thinking, you know, so those, this is appropriately black. This is not appropriately black. You know, the skin folks versus kin folks argument. Um, and I find that stuff to be really, um, I mean, simplistic, you know? Um, and again, I, I understand that there is an urgency to the times and to identifying friend or foe and um, always a sense that this, these stories are being mis or being deployed against us, you know, stories about race. And so it's, it really, it's really harmful when a black person who has, a, who has a platform is act actively trying to minimize or distort the reality of, of black people's lives. You know, that's, you know, hello, Candace Owens, right? Obviously, you know, it's not, it's, it's not, um, that's, that's an important problem. Right. Um, but there's a lot of simplistic thinking, you know, on all, all across this political spectrum. And I think it lends itself to a lot of arrogance, you know, a lot of right now, as it's true of every, in every moment, you know, everyone thinks I invented this. So there's a sense with the a new generation, um, kind of Twitter verse, you know, um, the lack of sense of historical perspective, you know, it's sometimes really troubling to me. Um, so I'm glad that it's really thrilling on that level, just on that, for that reason alone, that this book written in 1929 is people are talking about it. They're watching it. They're fascinated by it. It's, it feels so vindicating, you know, it's like, this is, yes, this is history and it's alive and it's beautiful. And it's so much to tell us about the, the now, but also our lives are ambiguous, right? We live in the nuances. We live in the contradictions. And I think, you know, I hate to sound like this generationally, this generational curmudgeon, but I think it's something young people have a hard time with, you know, today is that there is, you know, there actually are, there's a more gray area than there are absolutes. And, you know, I was young too. I mean, we all remember this, you know, we thought we had a handle on the world. We knew what was what, and I have 15 year old daughters, you know, so getting them to like slow down and say, well, you know what? No, this, this was always complicated. 
you know, and, and guess what? You can't tell by looking, <laughs> you know, um, and my sister-in-law, my, my, um, younger brother's wife is a, a mixed race woman. I look at her, I see a black woman. Um, and we were talking about, she, she, we talked about last night on the phone and you know, she watched the movie and she was saying that, um, she wondered if, whether her story is now an old story, if her story about, um, you know, being a mixed race woman who has always been black. And she was interestingly raised by a white mother, you know, who raised four deeply black identified daughters who are all biracial. Um, it was never quite, it was never confusing for her, but for the world. Right. Um, and so I remember also Dainsey Sinna in a, um, in a, I watched a, an interview online. She was in a panel and she said that she was born a black woman and became a bi biracial woman or became a mixed race person. So it was interesting, you know, cause you know, she was, that was who, that's who she is, but the new terminology then comes along a new political moment. And how does the language, how do we, what kind of language do we use is the language liberating or is it simplifying? But I think that what this book does and what the movie does is remind us that we don't know everything. <laughs> um, and, we, and we certainly can't see everything that, you know, um, just that we, we what, what Irene is dealing with, you know, um, I don't know. It's funny to think about that because it, our culture, there's so much. Um, and I know as a writer, you know, um, you're always cautioned to just get to the punchline, get to the bang, bang, because readers don't like ambiguity. You know, they really want things. And so was so and also vindicating this novel is such a novel of interiority, you know, and novel of suggestion. And I love that. And I think it's something we have to insist on, you know, in this culture right now, because people are turning away from that, right? We want yes or no answers. Is a mask going to keep me alive or not? Is this booster shot going to, you know, keep me safe, safe or not? You know, even though we know there are no simple answers to these questions, I think, you know, there's so much happening, but people really seem hungry to believe in falsehoods just because it's a yes or no. So what passing this new novel and the, the movie, what they do is remind us that, you know, whole lives are lived in these gray areas. And sometimes we behave in ways we don't ourselves fully understand. And, you know, um, and, and, and we don't know what's happening with someone else. And also the idea that this book is so current somehow, which I thought the filmmakers did beautifully. I mean, it was so much of its moment, but you felt the kind of um, how present day the characters were and these issues. Um, and, but it, it, so how did she achieve that without betraying, without, um, without compromising the, the contemporary feeling of it? I mean, it was happening in the twenties. We know this is happening in the twenties. At the same time, it didn't feel alien it didn't feel like an artifact. It felt like a, a living story. And I think that that's a lesson to us that there, the distance between the past and the present is not so great. You know, we think we're inventing everything. No, we still haven't figured out the problems from a hundred years ago. You know, I mean, it's amazing that it's 2021. I mean, Mel Larson was not even really a writer, you know, a hundred years ago, you know, she was just kind of coming into who she was and growing up and, um, and look at this book now is getting this attention. And it's a, it's a lesson to all of us, you know, how, how little control we have uh, of, over, over the, even the events of our lives and, um, and the stories we tell, the reception and how, um, you know, how, how much the past has to teach us still, you know, we we, we learn from the past. Uh, it is, 
It is part of us. Before we, we're going to transition into what we call our lightning round. But I do want to ask you one last question just about the film. The film is in black and white, and I sent you a photo of both the character, both the actresses as Claire and Irene in black and white and color. Do you think the filmmaker's choice to make this film in black and white was a choice to put us in the past or to let us reflect more in the present or what are your thoughts about the choice? Oh. What a great question. I want to cheat and say both and. <laughs> I want to say both. <laughs> it usually uh, is. <laughs> yeah. um, I think that's a great question because I, I think we, it's, um, it's definitely feels like a window onto the past. And I loved the, I loved reading the article. It was in the New York Times, I think. Um, that really got into some of those choices, you know, about what well, you were pointing out earlier, you know, the framing of the faces, you know, and making sure we're always looking at, looking at the movies, much about looking, you know, looking at the faces of these women. Um, so I think that it, it, it truly evokes this time period. It feels to me, you know, it, I felt, as I said, it was almost like watching my own dream on the screen. You know, I spent so much time with this book and I thought, Oh Yes. I've imagined this very, you know, scene. I've imagined these, this interaction. Here it is. Um, but at the same time, it was eerily current, I felt. You know, um, just in, just in the, the, the human beings, the way they were interacting. Um, it felt, it felt that it, tried, it somehow was a bridge between these worlds. So I do think that both things were going on. I do think that we got a real glimpse into what um, what the life was like, what, what 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 these characters' lives are like, using all of the you know kind of modern techniques you know that weren't available in the twenties and um, filmmaking, um, but somehow managing to capture uh, you know what was unique about filmmaking around that time period. Um, specifically, I thought a lot about imitation of life, but it also felt, um, like it was, was asking us to examine ourselves. I mean, it really did feel, I felt very implicated in the film, just thinking about all the questions we've been asking today about, um, the kind of light law breaking, you know, <laughs> with the, um, and I thought about all stuff around marijuana and edibles and the jokes that get made and, you know, now and people, um, I, I, I thought about, um, you know, this, this, these women and their friendship and what it was built on. It was both competitive, but also they seemed to really, they existed for each other for the short amount of time too. And I thought about the dynamics of any intimate relationship and how layered they are. You know, it's really felt like a, a, a very human story. At the same time, very much a story set in the 20s, you know, about this moment in time. So she did something really powerful that that I think Larson also achieved in the book. So Tequina, on to the lightning round. Okay, so I think I may anticipate the answer to this first question. But Emily, (laughs) if you could travel back in time, where would you take yourself and why? 
Well, Dequina, I think I want to confound you. Oh, I think good. I, I, had a, I had a hard time with this one because, of course, I would like the three of us sitting around at the Algonquin or, you know, we're here with the tra- Drayton having tea. I would love that. All the three of us doing that together. But I, I was talking about this with my husband. I said, you know, I'm always like, like many people fascinated by ancient cultures. But, you know, so I thought, well, you know, I, I would love to be to be present just for a short amount of time. You know, in ancient Egypt. I mean, I, but what you would you wouldn't want to be a slave in ancient Egypt, right? <laughs> you want to have somebody like just as I want to pop in and out to see what's going on, try to get a sense of what culture was like, what people were interacting. Did, did they ever have a sense that we might exist? You know, that this culture today might exist. I mean, I'm always would love to know that and to have a sense of that. So I would say, but that would be my. I know, this is, I'm talking too much. It's lightning round, but I want to say ancient <laughs> Egypt. <laughs> Okay, my question. If you could be a character in a period adaptation, who would you be? Well, now I'm probably going to answer Tequina's question and say it would be Audrey Dinney in Quicksand. Because she's the only character who's truly free, I think, in, in, the, in the kind of Larson's whole fictional worlds that she created. Audrey is um, a character who, you know, she, other characters hate her because she is free. She dances whoever, whatever she wants to, including white people, white men. She goes to interracial parties. She thumbs her nose and everybody's telling her to sit home with her knees together. <laughs> She's out and having a good time. And we don't know terribly much about her, but we do know. I always, since I read about her, I think when I was 18 years old, I see her spinning on the dance floor, just just, just free and, and having a great night. People are talking about her. She's just thumbing her nose at them. So it'd be Audrey Denny in Quicksand. Okay, I have to put Quicksand on my reading list. Oh, yes, you must. I'm reading it now. Um, yeah, so we think about our understanding ourselves as also living, uh, that one day will be history. So this next question has to do with what three items would you include in a time capsule that represents the times that you've lived through, Emily? Hmm. Well, I think the first item would be a book. And I'm not sure what, what book that would be. Probably a book from my mother's collection, something, you know, um, she read to me or something that was precious to her that I still have. The second item would be a typewriter, you know, which was so important to me as a teenager, you know, um, learning to become a writer on a typewriter. And then it has to be an iPhone, you know, where all of those things exist <laughs> together now, all the books and all the writing, you know, um, I'm, I have to. I can't. I would be honest if I didn't put the iPhone in there. That's a nice evolution too. Yeah, and you have your videos and pictures in there too. Exactly. Right. <laughs> and movies like Quicksand, like Passing. Yeah. Excuse me. So, and this is the theme of our podcast. Do you see historical drama like Passing, and others that you've watched, as a window to the past, or a mirror of the present? I think that's got to be a both and answer. I mean, both, I think, um, certainly a window onto the past and it's a pleasure, you know, just to, to, it's refreshing just to be able to visit another historical moment and immerse yourself. So that's, that's really important about historical drama. You know, we can read, we can read reports and histories and statistics, but there's nothing like seeing something animated, you know, a a period animated brought to life with flesh and blood human beings. But of course, we're always, you know, seeing that 
past through the lens of our own desires and who we are today. You know, the, the very things that we, even the, the filmmaker, we talk, we're talking about the, you know, small decisions in the movie. Um, giving Zulina a moment of being a, re, a full presence. That's something, something that, that would not have happened, right? Um, in Larson's America, you know, but, but now it's a matter of course that we understand about classism <laughs> and we understand, as you say, about, you know, the way that that operates in black communities too, you know, that, that kind of those things take place and they're harmful. And so we ha have progressed as a culture, but um, so when we look at the past, of course, we look at it through the lens of, of, of who we are in the present, you know, I think it's fascinating to, to, to remember that and to always, it's fun to tease it out, you know, where the past ends and the present begins. Well, thank you, Emily, for joining us here for this very, this conversation that could go on for a couple of more hours on Absolutely. passing here on Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters. For our audience, Passing, based on the novel by Nella Larson, adapted and directed by Rebecca Hall, is available on Netflix. And we invite you, our listeners, to share your thoughts about the film adaptation of Nella Larson's Passing. You can post them on Instagram at Historical Drama Sisters. And join us again and share Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters on your social media and with your friends. This is Michonne Boston. And this is Tequina Boston. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters, a podcast about historical films and series dramas. Visit our webpage at michonnebostongroup.com backslash Boston Sisters. Tell us what historical dramas you're watching. Who knows? We may do a show about it. Sign up for our newsletter, subscribe to the podcast, and share it with the people you know who geek out on historical drama. Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters is brought to you by the Michonne Boston Group. The views and opinions expressed on historical drama with the Boston Sisters are those of the speakers and do not represent the positions or views of the Michonne Boston Group, its clients, or affiliates. This is Michonne Boston. And Tequina Boston. Thank you for listening.